You're listening to Africa Rights Talk, a Center for Human Rights podcast series hosted by Dominic Meisters. Welcome to the conversation. Today we are having a conversation with Professor Franz Follion, who's the director of the Center for Human Rights and a professor of international human, um, human rights law, not to mention as one of the prominent scholars on the African human rights system. We are chatting about the African human rights system's main mechanisms, predominantly the African Commission on Human and People's Rights and the African Court on Human and People's Rights. So, Professor Fulian, what I was wanting to discuss with you today in particular is since June 2018, the African Union Executive Council adopted a decision which, um, for all intents and purposes, is trying to limit the power of the African Commission. So could you tell us a bit more about this and what are the potential implications? Thank you and uh, good day, I mean, to, uh, to you. Thank you for the opportunity and thanks for the introduction. It's far too kind. Um, let me just say, you know, I'll refer to this as Resolution 1015, you know, so you know, like otherwise one has the difficulty of saying what, what it is. Obviously, this resolution, I think, in the first instance, it speaks to the um, withdrawal of the observer status of an African NGO uh, called the Coalition of African Lesbians. The brief history is that um, the African Commission uh, earlier in 2015 uh, According to its usual processes, it uh, granted observer status to the Coalition of African Lesbians, I think, as many of, of our listeners would also know. Um, that prompted the Executive Council to um, uh, direct the Commission, if you like, to uh, reverse its decision. Then a number of years really later, we are now in 2018, right, uh, at the time when the um, Executive Council, in a sense, lost patience. I mean, there are a few things that happened before that, but the, the, um, this decision, 1015, essentially... Um, puts an ultimatum. So it says to the Commission that uh, you have to uh, comply with um, this uh, uh, direction that we've given you to withdraw the status. So clearly, uh, for those years, the Commission was uh, prevaricating for good reason, because it was really in, a, in, a, in the throes of a dilemma, because on the one hand, if it um, would accept the direction by the political organs, it loses its independence, its autonomy, or at least the appearance of its autonomy and independence. On the other hand, if it um, refuses to heed the uh, direction of the political bodies, the policy organs, it uh, may uh, you know, experience some kind of political uh, recrimination at the very least. Um, however, we know now that the Commission has not many months after at its extraordinary session in um, August in, uh, of 2018, it actually um, complied with uh, the, um, the decision and it, in fact, uh, ungranted, if that's a word, or withdrew the status of observer for, for Cal. But to give a little context, I think it is a part of a long-standing, um, I don't know, when one doesn't want to call it a battle, but um, a push and pull between the Commission and uh, the states, the state parties. And I, and I really think that it relates to this kind of a, a fundamental contradiction, I'd call it, right? On the one hand, the states have created the system and they want an independent uh, system of, of, of supervision because that is what the African human rights system is. It is independent supervision. But on the other hand, from time to time, they still assert 
their sovereignty or relatively narrowly constructed notions of sovereignty as if they have not fully appreciated that they've given out or at least allowed the erosion of their sovereignty. So what happened in 2015, you know, this first reaction and what happened now in 2018 is in a sense part of a pattern. And that pattern interestingly started when the function of uh, receiving the Commission's reports and giving comments and really considering it, which in the African Charter is given to the Assembly, the heads of states. That was in uh, 2003, you know, just after the foundation of the uh, uh, AU, it was given over to the Ministers of Foreign Affairs, the, what is now known as the uh, Executive Council. Whereas in the past, the Assembly more or less routinely just accepted the Commission's reports. When it was given to the uh, much more active uh, executive Council, uh, we find that the, the uh, states have been much more responsive, much more um, animated by the reports of the Commission. Um, so uh, to make a long story short, starting in 2004, very soon thereafter, we have a number of times when the Executive Council then, when it considers the Commission's report, it pushes back. It says well, we will not accept your report unless you do this or you do that. And initially it was not very problematic because the, the in, intrusions were, uh, let's call them procedural in nature. It was usually about, oh, Zimbabwe pushes back. There was a report, that's where it started, on a fact-finding mission and Zimbabwe said, oh, we have not been given an opportunity to give our side of this. So all the alterum partem kind of arguments were put before the commission and then the state was allowed to complement and then eventually the report was published. So it was not fundamentally a, a kind of a, a standoff. It was a procedural thing. However, in 2015, in January, so, you know, it kind of intensified. It was not just a matter of procedure. But in that instance, we have two decisions by Rwanda and no one really knows what, what happened and can uh, in the public domain knows what happens. Um, Two decisions of Rwanda are in the activity report. We know that they've been adopted or they are there, but then the uh, Executive Council requires the Commission not to publish those, those decisions. There should have been a process subsequent to that, but no one later on see these decisions recurring back. So that is probably even a more flagrant intrusion into the Commission's competence because it means the Commission has decided cases and somehow the, uh, the Executive Council managed to have those decisions um, disappear and, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, be submerged. So, so the point I suppose I'm trying to make is that the um, tension between states and the Commission is not a new thing. It has perhaps now uh, reached a very uh, visible um, uh, kind of a climax, a point where it's become very visible also because of the kind of issues involved around the coalition of African lesbians. So it's not only about the processes, but... There's a lot of emotion invested because it's an issue, an issue that is emotive, namely, you know, the rights of lesbians and gays and transgender persons that somehow, for some people, um, skew the debates, but also clearly uh, kind of ups the ante. It also makes it more um, visible and, and important for many people to engage in this debate. So do you think it was more of an opportunity that the state saw to bring the commission more within the AU, because obviously it's an independent um, body, it's not an AU organ. But if you read the um, Resolution 1015, you would, it's trying to include it in there. So is this kind of a way to bring it in, 
or is it really the fact that it's a LGBTI plus issue? So we are rightfully thinking about, you know, why why does this really happen? Um, and I think you are right that to some extent it's about exerting closer scrutiny and control over the doings and the activities of the Commission. And the Commission, as you point out, has always been seen as a, a bit of an awkward institution within the African Union because, on the one hand, it has been set up through a treaty, a treaty, the, the African Charter on Human and People's Rights. Um, so it is. it finds its legal existence not in the fact that the AU or the, its predecessor, the OAU, one day decided we need to create an institution like, like the Pan-African Parliament or, 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 let's say, you know, institutions like the Executive Council. No, there was a treaty adopted and one state ratified that treaty. The institution that came about is the African Commission. So in that sense, it is a bit of, a, of, an, of an outsider, insider, if you like. But it is also true that the AU at some point then said, but we will treat the commission as de facto as a body. But uh, because the truth is, it is the AU that appoints the members to the African Commission. According to the Charter, it is the AU that has to um, uh, re ensure that resources are allocated. The budget will be provided to them, although there may be external sources as well. So um, there is certainly this tension that there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, there are two contending um, logics at work, that the Commission on the one hand is somehow separate inside but outside, an insider-outsider institution, or on the other hand for the states, no, you are just as much an AU institution as any other institution because functionally, in a sense, you function as, as an um, as an AU institution. So, yes, I think part of what happened in, um, you know, the context of resolution or decision 1015 is that um, that uh, the, the states wanted to make uh, this, this line, this location of the commission clearer. But undeniably, one of the issues here is also the, the substance of, you know, the Cal application was about an organization that defends the rights of women, lesbian women, on, on the continent. And for some... Uh, you know, this has become difficult to almost uh, distinguish between the issues. So is the issue really driven by an animosity towards the advancing uh, the rights of LGBTI, you know, equality on the basis of sexual orientation, gender identity? Or is it just a matter of um, uh, 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 clarifying roles, if you like, within the AUM structures? But for me, I think one has to, one has to accept that... Um, that uh, it's uh, it's certainly a very fundamental issue. So it is not just about Saji, uh, if you like, sexual orientation, not about lesbian. Because for us in civil society, for us looking as as interested outsiders into the commission's activities, uh, you know, this is an important and and uh, and a, a really concerning precedent. Because if the uh, commission is directed to reverse a decision, uh, which is in effect happening here then um, that reversal may relate to a particular substantive issue. But that is really not the core of the matter. It could have been any issue. What is, has been established is that there's a precedent now, that the Commission needs to redirect itself in the light of the political directives. And that fundamentally um, uh, uh, affects the Commission's autonomy and independence. And if I may, just in terms of what brought about um, you know, the decision and this whole resistance, there are also those who feel that um, particular governments, like, you know, let's be frank, if I may, also the government, for example, of Egypt had been quite um, instrumental, you know, not always so 
obviously, but in pushing this agenda. So for others, it may have little to do with uh, sexual orientation or gender identity, in fact. The, the fact of the matter is, in the last you know, few years, the country that had received the most complaints against it had been Egypt, because you know, Egypt does have a dismal human rights record. And there are actually few other outlets where individuals can go to uh, in Egypt. Egypt has not ratified, it has not accepted the African court, for example. So if people want to go beyond the national, the African Commission is an obvious place. And we've seen this flood of cases, you know, urgent appeals, provisional measures, matters have come. Um, so there has even been this referral of, 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 of these cases, um, according to, uh, to knowledge one has. In terms of Article 58, there's been a referral of, of Egypt to the to the assembly, or at least an attempt to do so. I'm not sure that knowledge is also not very clear in the public domain. But I think the point here is that particular governments may also have uh, used this opportunity to further undermine the legitimacy and the role that the commission plays. Because the commission, for all the criticisms that we may have, it is still the only show that really functions in Africa in terms of human rights. Yes, there is a court, and we'll, we'll talk about that, but the court for countries like Egypt, is irrelevant because Egypt has not accepted the jurisdiction of the court. So, since you've brought up Egypt, I think one of the things we need to discuss then is if Egypt is obviously now chairing the AU for the year, do you think there's going to be even more of a pushback? Because obviously in the February um, summit just gone, the... African Commission reported back that, yes, we've withdrawn Cal's observer status. If the precedent is there, do you think there is now going to be more pushback against this? Because I know in the decision, Resolution 1015, they're already asking states to analytically review the interpretive mandate of the commission. Um, and yes, they talk about the overlap with the court as um, possibly an excuse or a justification for it. What are the dangers? Mm in this review of its interpretive mandate then? Okay, so maybe to start just by the Egyptian um, chairpersonship of the African Union, it also has led to, to Egypt inviting the commission to hold its next session in Egypt, in Cairo, one, one assumes. So that, um, I think, in itself would be uh, a great gesture, unless the state is shown to really want to use that uh, moment to further legitimize a precarious human rights record. So within civil society, there is actually at the moment uh, a very vibrant discussion whether NGOs with observer status, for example, should go to Egypt and actually attend that session uh, because on the one hand, that may be seen to uh, you know, legitimize Egypt's efforts, if some see it like that, to... Um, give some kind of a veneer to paint over its human rights records with its veneer that it is a human rights friendly country because it invites the commission and it will obviously use this um, um, moment for, for that purpose. It is also, um, um, it has submitted its um, report, its um, periodic report to the commission and that report will be considered during the session of the commission. So, you know, it, it is aligning the uh, event to be a public relations event for protection of human rights. My argument, at least for the moment, I can be persuaded differently, is that if all NGOs um, are persuaded not to go, then we perhaps just play exactly into the hand of the Egyptian um, attempt, if it is such, to um, uh, use this as an exercise of legitimating uh, you know, a precarious human rights record. 
I think NGOs should be present, but if they are present, they should speak out and bring out the issues around human rights very, very clearly. When Egypt's report is heard, uh, you know, the shadow reports, the parallel reports should be there. The commissioners should be confronted in the corridors so that they pose the difficult questions and the issues come out. So we know that that may be of limited utility in a country like Egypt, where the media may also be um, constrained, that there may be, uh, you know, uh, some lack of a free flow of information. But at the very least, I think one can use that opportunity also to highlight the concerns one has about Egypt's um, human rights record. But in terms of the second part of your, your question, um, how does you know this feed into decision 1015 and it's an ongoing effort? Yeah. So decision 1015, as you indicate, uh, was about this ultimatum that the commission has to withdraw CAL's observer status, and it has done so, but it goes much further. It also uh, directs the commission to do all co co forms of, of soul-searching and to come up with reports or studies around issues, and the one you highlighted is the issue around um, its relationship with the court. So the Executive Council has kind of intimated in this decision that perhaps the commission and the court need not coexist, that if you look at protection, that the court should be given the mandate, if you like, to ensure human rights protection in Africa, and the commission, by implication, should devote its attention to the softer issues of promotion and special rapporteurships and so on. And to the extent that this is an opportunity for this to be further uh, pushed and um, you know uh, elaborated upon, um, I think it is problematic. I don't think that anything specific will happen immediately, but I think states like Egypt, uh, the states that have been um, initiating um, these um, specific um, elements of decision 1015, clearly those states will want to see and want to continuously engage uh, with the Commission on these issues. And um, all of that holds, holds certain um, you know, uh, perils to the Commission. Okay, well, moving slightly to the court then, if, if, for example, states manage to pull back some of the interpretive mandate of the Commission, what does that mean for the court? Because as you've already said, less states are um, a party to the court's uh, statute. How do we access the court then? How is the African Charter going to be realised, promoted, help protect? Yes, I think, I mean, if, if the culmination of this, uh, you know, process that seems to be suggested by that decision of the Executive Council is that there is an erosion of the uh, protective mandate of the Commission, it will certainly have uh, grave implications, as you say. I mean, 30 states have accepted the court's jurisdictions. It means that 15, 14 have not. So if you now say that the Commission loses its protective mandate and only the court has, there seems to be very little incentive for states that have not ratified the court's you know, protocol or accepted its jurisdiction to do so. But even as it stands at the moment, accessing the court is um, a difficult you know, proposition because you have to... Uh, Usually, for most of the states, you have to go through the commission. So states should actually accept that the commission is still playing a filtering role. I mean, that is how we see the inter-American uh, system works for human rights protection. So as it is, the, the, the complaints are perceived to go from the individual in the state to the commission. The commission has an opportunity to look at it, um, settle it amicably, 
filter it out, and only then does it go to the state. So I think states often do not fully appreciate also how this intricate system really works. And I, and I think perhaps part of this discussion could be to alert states and make them see the benefits of having a commission process. Because if you only have the court, in fact, it would mean that cases go directly from the national jurisdiction to the court. And perhaps that is even more, if you like, invasive of state sovereignty although that is a very useful way of accessing the court directly, and some states have accepted that as a direct route, because that is possible, as you know, um, uh, in terms of the protocol. But um, So I, I would say that the issue here is that um, uh, proper understanding, so hopefully through this debate, you know, I think there, there are heated emotions at stake here and perhaps uh, radical positions taken on, on the basis of a lack of full appreciation. And hopefully this debate will bring out the utility and the role of the Commission also in the protection mandate process. Just building on this, the alerting states and hoping that this debate is going to do that, what role then is the Commission having to play to alert states to what it actually is? Or is it civil society, or is it the NGOs who are involved with, who've got observer status, who have an intricate understanding? What can actually be done? Because if you're saying states, there's a possibility states don't really understand the system. I mean, some people might question what was the value in getting them to sign up to it if they don't understand it. So how can we rectify this? What, mm. what are the challenges? What should, be, what should the commission be doing, if anything? Yeah, and maybe, you know, I mean, it's it's not to be uh, denying the agency of states, but I think, they, you know, there's an intricate legal environment. That's just a fact. So I think that, um, you know, and let us not forget that this uh, resolution by the Executive Council has emanated from a retreat that, you know, during this period of impasse, if, you know, some people need to be reminded, during the period uh, after 2015, but before 2018 when this resolution or decision by the executive council was taken, there was um, the commissioners were called to a retreat uh, between essentially the political organs. In this case, it was the permanent representatives um, committee, the ambassadors, they met with the commission. And clearly, uh, I suppose what I suggest had not really uh, resulted from that meeting. So there was a, an animosity. There was not a, a very um, a good spirit, as far as one learns, from the meeting of the commissioners and the, and the, and the ambassadors. I mean, clearly there are exceptions to the rule. But um, so if that is the case, and now we have the direction to the commission to look at certain issues, I think at the same time, if you look at African states, they there's always a danger of looking at states and looking at them in a very hegemonic way. Like, okay, there's one Africa, there's one view. No, sometimes one view predominates and it's popular. Someone pushes a view, one state pushes, pushes a view. I think that reasonableness will still prevail, that there are many states who are great supporters and have always shown support. I don't want to name names, but, you know, there are a core group of states that are genuinely concerned to see the upholding of human rights. And that kind of core group, I think, need to be persuaded and how should it be done? The commission, the ball is in a sense in the court of the commission, if the court, you know, no pun intended. So the commission has to now develop these studies and bring out these views, which will be the basis for contesting the issue and uh, discussing the issue with the, with the court, if you like, uh, or, or with, the, with, the, with, the, with the state parties through the executive council, rather, about uh, the court and about other issues. So the commission has to uh, really uh, do... Uh, it's best, uh, you know, maybe consult widely, get um, experts uh, involved, but ultimately, you know, get uh, 
its own act together to make those points and make them in a very uh, cogent and um, constructive way. And I'm sure they are doing that because this is clearly a priority phase. Uh, the involvement of civil society is always a bit um, precarious. You know, as someone, let's say, as a center, you know, with observer status, we are considering ourselves as part of civil society for sure. We know that states uh, find the uh, overly visible and clear involvement of civil society problematic. And I think they're not um, totally wrong because the agenda that has to be driven should be the agenda of the African Commission. And we have seen some examples. Let's all concede that, you know, the Commission has um, taken uh, views uh, pushed and, and, and advocacy campaigns by civil society almost, um, you know, uh, to some extent, I mean, these are earlier years I'm talking about, um, uncritically into its own um, working methods and so on. So um, states have pushed back against that and said the Commission's mandate must be its own. It cannot be um, captured, if you like, by civil society, just as the Commission should not be captured by states. And I think, um, so civil society should be modest, should be instructive, should do everything it can, but it can also not have the expectation that it should, uh, you know, totally and fully uh, um, you know, inform the view. So I think it is a critical engagement by civil society, you know, with the commission that is being called for, uh, and, and, you know, each, uh, ultimately, each um, and every of the civil society organizations must work and should work at the national level. You know, we all know that, you know, things happen in Banjul and now in Cairo, but ultimately the African human rights system must become alive at the domestic level. And if states need to be persuaded and need to be engaged with, should be those civil society organizations, those NGOs with observer status in the various states that also take opportunities, maybe, you know, in whatever way they, they may deem and see, or may seem appropriate, they should also take those opportunities to engage states. Because only in that way, you know, from the kind of a, from the bottom up, can we find that states, when they come together, they may all bring a, a partially different view, and that can be then confronted with the Commission's uh, policy papers, and perhaps there could be a more constructive dialogue. I know it may, sh may sound a bit wishful, but I think it's not totally unrealistic. Okay, so just a final point that I'm... I don't know, I might have misread into what you're saying, but when you're saying that this should be driven by the Commission, do you think that this, this is actually could be an opportunity that the Commission could strengthen itself, if it really kind of solidifies its identity, or is it currently more of a containment in not getting further limitations placed upon it, if it is going to become an AU organ or assumed into the AU? Yeah. You are onto something, I'm sure, because this is a moment of crisis. Let's not beat around the bush. Uh, many perceive the Commission to have carved in, to now basically have compromised its own autonomy and independence by having given in to the Executive Council's direction. How does it recover from that? Uh, you know, uh, how does it deal with this? And on top of that, it has all these other issues that are now raised that need to be interrogated. And I think uh, the obvious way must be for the Commission to see this rather as an opportunity and not as a, as a moment of, of threat. That yes, it, it was uh, for you know, various reasons it took the decision to actually withdraw the, the, the observer status. It has to overcome that and it has to assert and show its independence and its autonomy in every way possible. Be as well informed, be as, as clear about the direction that it, that it is taking. So I think the Commission is clearly very, 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 uh, very um, 
clear in its own position about the issues. For example, that there could be no question of, uh, of the Commission's uh, com uh, protective mandate being uh, you know, compromised or, or taken away. I think one thing that can actually also happen is that the Commission and the Court and even the third institution, the Committee on the Rights of the Child, they, I think it's fair to say they could work more closely together and see uh, this uh, also as a united front, an opportunity. You know, they are separate institutions, but they serve uh, one underlying, you know, purpose, and that is to advance the rights of, of, of our people on the African continent. So um, there has not always been the most felicitous uh, kind of cooperative relationship between the Commission and the Court, and perhaps you know this opportunity also shows that there is just no other way. One has to make this work. work. And one thing that the Commission was reluctant to do up to now was also to refer cases uh, to the Court. So cases that the Commission has decided on the merits are ripe, if you like, to be referred to the court. We all know, for example, the Endoroy's case against Kenya. It have, we have a decision for almost a decade now. Uh, and the rule would be that if there is clear non-compliance by the state with the commission's recommendation, that there is this possibility of referring the case to the court. It is not always clear why the commission has not done so yet. And I think there should be clearer guidance, there should be much um, closer interrogation and a very concerted effort by the Commission to refer cases so that it shows the functional relationship between the Commission and the Court because it just uh, strengthens the hands of the critics of the Commission and the Court's relationship if this functionality actually is uh, delayed um, as it is at the moment. Well, thank you very much, Professor Fulian, for your insights into the Commission and the Court. It's a pleasure. I hope uh, that this, these kinds of dialogues will continue and uh, uh, you know, will lead to uh, the outcome that we all desire, namely to see better protection for human rights in Africa. This has been Africa Rights Talk with me, Dominique Maestros, in conversation with Professor Franz Fulian. Join us in our other episodes as we continue to explore further human rights issues.